my mind, much of the 20th century has been shaped by communism. But what precisely is communism? Is it a political party? Is it an ideology? Is it a set of ideas? How do we parse it through? My name is Ene Mansour, or Nadira, and welcome to New Books in World Affairs. Today, my guest will help us parse what communism is, and in particular, what the meaning of the Communist Party is. So my guest today is A. James McAdams, who is the William M. Scholl Professor of International Affairs and the director of the Nanovic Institute for European Studies at Notre Dame. He has written widely on European and especially Central European affairs. His books include East Germany and Detente, Germany Divided, Judging the Past in Unified Germany and the Crisis of Modern Times. But the subject of today's interview, his latest book, is Vanguard of the Revolution, The Global Idea of the Communist Party, up 2017 from Princeton University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we always start out with a bit of an autobiographical question, sort of what is your intellectual biography? Um, How did this project come about and how does it sort of fit into your intellectual history? Um, Yeah, well, I... uh... Uh, It's an interesting background. I went to Berlin, to West Berlin in 1973 with the goal of learning how to read Hegel and Nietzsche in uh, German. And uh, I had the uh, unusual but very stimulating opportunity to go through the Berlin Wall on a regular basis and uh, uh, see another world, uh, which... uh, for a 19-year-old, it was just a, a fascinating experience. And, uh, uh, you know, I was always curious to understand how does this work? How doesn't it work? What do people think? Um, it was just so different from some anything that I had experienced before. And then how did sort of your work develop from that onwards? Was it a very natural decision to go to grad school after that? Yes, it, it was. Uh, I, you know, I'm fascinated about the intersection between ideas and politics. And so I went to Berkeley uh, with the aim of, of primarily studying political theory. But the more and more I got into it, the more I, I thought about, well, what does political theory look like on the ground? And uh, of course, I was uh, very stimulated by my past experience uh, in Germany and my travels in Eastern Europe uh, in the 1970s and uh, early 1980s. Um, So I began to think about this uh, first uh, through the lens of of German affairs and the East German experience, but then more and more um, from an international perspective. And I taught a lot of courses uh, in the beginning of my career on uh, what we then called comparative communist studies. Okay, and then, I mean, like I mentioned, you have a very long career of writing um, on these topics. So how did this particular book come about? Because it's it's a global history, so to speak. Yes, it's, uh, um, well, every, every time I visited uh, these countries, um, I was curious to know, not just how their their parties, how their governments operated, but more so, uh, what made the people in these parties tick? I mean, why, even in the 1980s, could I find uh, people who were still convinced in one way or another that what they were doing was right and there was uh, merit to the, the uh, uh, a set of communist 
ideals. And so I was curious about figuring that out uh, just for myself, because I knew these people, I enjoyed uh, my conversations with intellectuals. Uh, in the case of East Germany in particular, I met um, many, many people in the party elite. Um, but, um, you know, I was, I was also interested in understanding where, how the ideas that began in the 19th century intersected in different ways with the uh, political and social realities of very different countries. So one thing that I feel a big tension with my own work is that I, I identify as a global historian. My dissertation is a global history, so to speak. Um, but of course, global history has of late become very, very, very trendy. And that's always a tension within just developing um, academic discourses. But what I what always just sort of gives me um, a bit of calm about the issue versus, oh, am I just doing this because it's trendy, is that there are many things that global history allows you to do that doing a national history or doing a very specific genre of history cannot allow you to do. And in particular, I think that the, I don't know, I always feel like global history gives me a setting. Um, I think about it in terms of the way that many science fiction writers talk about science fiction, that science fiction mm -hmm. is a setting. It's not a bunch of tropes. Yeah. It's, a, so, it's a setting and a challenge. So, Oh, in what way do you find it to be a challenge? Well, it's a challenge because you have to ask yourself, how do I, if I, if I want to think in global terms, uh, you, you know, how, how do I identify those terms? Uh, how do I decide that there is something that uh, either transcends or underlies uh, developments in one country with another? And that was one of the biggest challenges in writing the book. Um, let me say something about um, a global history just from a personal standpoint, and then I'll, I'll speak about how I tried to deal with it in the book. Um, but first of all, um, I was trained as a political scientist. I think of myself as a, as a uh, political historian. But when I first heard about global history uh, or the, the approach known as global history, I I was surprised um, because I, I couldn't have imagined before then uh, not studying uh, the individual uh, parties' histories from a global perspective. So when you use the word trendy, I can relate to that. Uh, I can relate to that very, very strongly because it just seemed to me to be um, uh, sensible and just the right way to go about. Uh, studying phenomena, that, that by the challenge, I mean that um, we, can't, we can't take an institution, a global institution like the Communist Party, and simply say, well, here, this is what it was like in one country, this is what it was like in another country. You know, these parties have different attributes, um, because that just doesn't work. What we have to think about is, and, and I emphasize this in the book, is um, how we can start with, in my case, ideas and then relate them to different contexts. So one of the huge challenges for me in the book was not simply to talk about communist parties, but to know enough about each 
uh, a party's history, its context, its background, its countries, uh, or its its people's background. Um, you can't talk about the Communist Party of the Soviet Union without thinking about uh, 19th century Russia. You can't talk about the uh, Communist Party of China without thinking about the Qing Dynasty uh, and its challenges, uh, the dynasty's fall and what came afterwards. So, um, you know, the real challenge is how do we take an idea that made sense in one context and explain how it can be transferred and adapted to, to other contexts? And, you know, that's not just an intellectual challenge, but that was the challenge of uh, communist leaders and communist enthusiasts. No, that's one thing I'm always trying to explain to people who don't quite understand intellectual history or think that it's simply the rote uh, history of ideas, that sometimes ideas travel places, but they don't always transplant. And also when ideas travel, they can change. Yes. Um, they become different things. Um, and that's yeah. something I appreciate about the book is you do contextualize and you contextualize and you contextualize and you explain the differences between the two major parties that sort of come to our minds when we think of the of communism, sort of the two iconic parties being um, that of the People's Republic of China and that of the USSR. And you build that so well in the book, I want to emphasize, you give us sort of the back history um, as it develops um, in tandem to what was going on with sort of the writing of the Communist Manifesto, for example. Uh, but you have a sense of why these particular examples develop, but also, and I hope we get into this later, the global importance of those two parties and how yeah. they influence everyone else. And I think that one could, if you took the cover off of the book and handed it to someone, handed the first three or four chapters, it would very much read like a history of, a comparative history of, um, Russia and China, the, the Russian case and the Chinese case of communism. But what that allows you to do in building up these very thick histories is you're able to then tell the story of the common turn and how the common turn affected all these different locales, but also what happens when, for example, Vietnam takes the case or we we're talking about North Korea before the interview. And I just think that's a, it's a very, I think one one someone would have been tempted to tell the the, the story through uh, the different phases of all of these parties, but you took a very chronological approach. Yes, well, I you know as a political historian, I I can't help but think chronologically, um, and uh, because I see uh, ideas, organizations, and institutions um, as uh, having a life of their own. Uh, they live, they develop over time, and then they're, they're influenced by uh, similar ideas, organizations, and institutions. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the common turn because um, the, the common turn is uh, we can learn a lot about the history of the idea of the party uh, and communism uh, by thinking about what the point of the common turn was. And that is not simply describing what it was as an organization that, that became more rigid over time or as an instrument of Soviet domination, but as one of many experiments, one, one of many efforts reaching back to uh, roughly 1848, uh, in which uh, people who called themselves communists were thinking about 
how to generalize a uh, national history to um, um, you know a global phenomenon. And uh, in the um, in the first fifty years after the uh, or sixty years after the writing of the Communist Manifesto, there was a uh, very strong uh, hope that somehow the ideas of people like Marx and uh, Engels would uh, acquire a life of their own and uh, different groups would come together, national groups, and uh, foster a truly, not just international, but a worldwide movement. This is what the idea of proletarian revolution is all about. In uh, 1919, when the Comintern was formed, uh, that idea still existed. Certainly it existed in Lenin's mind. But over time, and actually fairly quickly, uh, when the Soviets recognized that uh, they, they you know, couldn't just count upon individual communist parties around the world to bond together, they realized that they needed more and more of a, of a centralized organization to make this happen. Uh, and then, of course, in that process, they created an organization that was uh, rigid, stereotype, uh, fixed, that um, didn't fit that well with, for example, the, the challenges that communists in China faced. You mentioned a few moments ago the, the, the writing of the Communist Manifesto, and I kind of want to take us back to there um, so we can sort of proceed a little chronologically as the book goes. Um, I sort of, I feel like every time I was made to read the Communist Manifesto, it was sort of just handed to me in a Russian lit class, in a political thought class. And I never actually, I'm really ashamed to say it, I was never taught the context of it until I read your book last hmm. week. And it made me think about just sort of how mythologized the Communist Manifesto has become that's sort of referred to as like this, this great idea. It's mm -hmm. yes. a great man with a great idea. And I think even the way we approach Marx, I mean, there's, um, there was a re recent book, uh, The Young Marx, that came out that focused on his work at the, the beginning of the 1840s. And I think what reading your book made me think of is sort of the institutional context of the document, sort of why it was written, who requested it to be written. I never thought that it was something that operated within the context of a party. Um, so I, and, and another thing that really struck me is I guess I always think of communism as a revolution from below, but to some extent the communist manifesto didn't strike me in your telling of the story as a true revolution of below. So I suppose I want to ask you about the difference between the Communist Party and then the manifesto and that relationship there. And then also and I, I, what the relationship of the Communist Manifesto is to communist ideology. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to recognize or truly appreciate the significance of the Communist Manifesto. Um, but I, I think people lose sight of its context. And uh, the context is that a very small group of uh, revolutionaries, uh, many Germans living in places like Paris and London, uh, were trying to figure out how do we make a revolution? Uh, and they, they, this was a very small group of people. Uh, they got together, they talked in in uh, uh, pubs, uh, they shared their writings, 
And so they were looking for opportunities to figure out, um, uh, you know, where can we find um, some confidence that, that we have a role to play in the world? And what's so fascinating about the Communist Manifesto, and it's something that I only realized after I started to write the book, is that aside from the title, uh, Karl Marx, who's, who's the author of the manifesto, uh, never mentions the Communist Party again. Uh, it just doesn't show up. And that's because he wasn't thinking about the Communist Party as an organization, even though, you know, there was this organization, you know, where they they tried to, you know, get together and talk about the next step to revolutions. He wasn't thinking about it primarily as an organization, but instead as, as an idea of a revolutionary opportunity being presented um, to which he and other intellectuals could make a contribution and which, and you see this if you, uh, uh, if you look fairly closely in which, uh, he and his friends would play a leading role. But but at this point, they didn't know the Communist Party was going to have the following features um, because uh, the, the events hadn't presented themselves yet. To an extent, they were waiting for the events so that it would make sense to create an international organization. And so, as I said before, this is what happens in the 19th century is that there these, you know, efforts sometimes tentative, sometimes quite direct, to create a way of, of harnessing uh, the perspectives of different groups, uh, some of whom aren't, weren't communists as we understand them today, um, and uh, to take advantage uh, of events that would arise for revolution and actually events that didn't take place. So one thing you said, and you start off the book uh, with this idea, and it follows throughout the book. You're very careful in emphasizing it as your principal thesis: the um, idea that the party, as an idea, differs from the party in practice. And of course, you've mentioned over the course of our conversation the fact that institutions are very important to you and how those institutions function. So, how do you mentally distinguish between the party as an idea? And then the party in practice when telling this history. Yes, well, I um, I see institutions as a combination of of ideas and of organization. Uh, institutions have a lasting quality uh, in the sense that, uh, first of all, the the ideas motivate people uh, to belong and to make sacrifices. The organizations uh, provide. Uh, structure uh, so that uh, people work together and advance their ideas. The um, my argument, uh, which is is really the the reason that I wrote the book, uh, at least from a theoretical standpoint. My argument is that you can't understand the institution of the Communist Party without recognizing that it was first an idea and only slowly develop organizational features. And eventually the organizational features, uh, in many cases, uh, like in the Soviet Union, uh, ended up uh, uh, destroying the original ideas and and the people who held those ideas. 
How does the relationship with Mark's with Mark's course of relationship with Mark's is is he's a touchstone. So um, he, he's you know communist manifesto is a lot like a Bible and um, the uh, the Bible you can read it in different ways uh, come to different conclusions you may not even read it and uh, this is true of a lot of Marxist writings certainly revolutionaries most revolutionaries didn't really sit down and read uh, Das Kapital. Um, it's uh, it, it's always cited, but it would be awfully uh, it'd be it's quite turgid reading and wouldn't be very useful. But Marx is the the touchstone. Uh, he is the justification, and importantly, he provides ways of looking at the world that um, can make people want to make sacrifices. I, I think uh, this uh, is just something that can't be stated enough. Um, when, you, when you think about what Marx is, uh, was doing in the, in the 19th century, uh, is he saw himself as engaging in science. And this, it's easy for us to overlook that even this word science, Wissenschaft, wasn't, it wasn't even accepted or it wasn't used until the 19th century. So he saw himself as engaging in science uh, and studying the world in a rigorous way and making predictions on that basis. Um, as I argue in the book, uh, it, isn't, it, um, it isn't that important for many of these parties that his particular uh, uh, his particular idea about how the communist movement would evolve, uh, it isn't that important that it uh, took that explicit form, but that he provided by presenting a, uh, a, a putatively scientific concept, he provided a justification for people to go out and say, okay, we know for sure that there's going to be a revolution. And okay, we recognize that there must be initial sacrifices. And we know how brutal and bloody many of those sacrifices were. Um, but eventually, there will be uh, a promised land uh, down the road. And one of the things I emphasize in the book, which uh, I just think is crucial, is it isn't that Marx was predicting a revolution of proletariat against uh, the capitalist class that was so important, but that he provided an, Im an image, in his view, a scientific image of a struggle between a large disenfranchised, disenfranchised majority and um, a very tiny minority of exploiters. So this, this juxtaposition of majority versus minority could be adapted in settings that really had nothing to do with uh, the conditions in which Marx was operating in London in 1848. I also think of, I also think of in terms of how iconic he becomes, he becomes this because touchstone, touchstone, but he also, but he also you know, you use the term Marxist in conversation or Marxian and communists know what you're speaking about. And it also has sort of infiltrated other discourses that we have. I mean, in, in the writing of history, we talk about the Marxist turn in history writing um, in the 60s and 70s. So 
he's an icon, but I also think of so many other icons and big institutions, big characters, when I think of communism, especially over the course of the 20th century. And of course, there's no shortage of them. There's Lenin, there's Stalin, there's Mao. Are they as instrumental to the global history of communism, of the Communist Party, excuse me, uh, as we think they are? Well, I'm convinced they are. And this is the argument of my book. Because I focus on ideas, you have to ask yourself, uh, who are the people that are purveying these ideas? Uh, And um, certainly the main purveyors are the elites and those that are at the uppermost reaches of power. And what is really striking is um, how uh, absolutely decisive, how absolutely uh, crucial the ideas of people like Mao Zedong were in uh, guiding the revolution in China. Uh, You can't understand um, uh, developments in China without thinking about Mao's specific influence. Uh, It wasn't uh, like simply he was a supreme leader or that he wrote lots of books, but that Mao Zedong, like people like Joseph Stalin, were in the position to make any decision they wanted. And and Mao Zedong did this in a very casual way. And there are great accounts of, uh, you know, him in in his house in Beijing, uh, primarily spending his time in a swimming pool and making decisions that, uh, shape the lives of uh, millions of people. So um, political scientists tend to downplay the role of leadership and leaders because they it's difficult to generalize about leadership. Um, I make a big deal about leaders in the book because leaders are the purveyors of ideas. And if, if not they, then who? I want to take us back to the common term because in my mind that also has a certain, it's also very iconic in my mind. Maybe this is just because I'm coming from Middle Eastern history. Um, What communism did exist and does exist in the Middle East, there was a relationship with the common turn in the 30s, for example, with the Palestinian party. And there was some attempt to reach out to the Egyptian party, though I think that was a lot less successful. Um, Yeah. But sort of, can you give us an overview of the common turn? Because that was, it, it was born quite soon after the Russian revolution, wasn't it? That's right. Um, It was founded in 1919. um, And as I suggested earlier, um, the the Bolsheviks did have this idea, and they had it about their own revolution, that uh, the common term would simply be an organization in which different communists could come together and, uh, uh, you know, talk about their common goals and organize a coherent strategy. But it's striking, and and this was also the case with uh, the Bolsheviks' policies in in Russia, it's striking how quickly this uh, idea was uh, transformed into a quite rigid organization that um, uh, implemented policies that uh, uh, in many, many, many cases uh, did not in any way reflect uh, the needs of communists on the ground, uh, whether they be in the Middle East or uh, in China or in different parts of, of East Central Europe. And so, um, alas, uh, most of the history of the common turn from uh, the early 1920s onward is a history of domination 
and occasional challenges to um, Soviet uh, uh, domination. Uh, and the challenges are interesting, and I cover a lot of them in the book. Uh, you know, for example, uh, those of the Italian communists. But uh, however interesting, uh, the common term became this agency of domination. Eventually, the uh, Chinese, after the Sino-Soviet split, uh, tried to make their case for international leadership, but it was not nearly as as convincing. Um, I guess the one thing I'd add here is that there were uh, parties that were able to stand up to the common turn, either uh, independently uh, by leaving it uh, or within it. These were almost always parties, or I'd say always parties, that in some ways had a tradition of coming to power or at least forming their own identities independently. Uh, so when you think about um, uh, Tito, for example, Bros Tito in Yugoslavia, um, he could challenge uh, the uh, idea of the common turn or a subsequent organization, the common form, because he had come to power independently. Uh, his struggle was uh, uh, one which uh, his party had made independently of the Soviet Union. Um, that's why when you look at, say, um, guerrilla movements, parties that emerge from guerrilla movements, um, they have the greatest leverage over, uh, over organizations like the common term. So it's almost, it's 170 years to the year that the Communist Manifesto was written. And uh, that aside, what sort of accounts for the longevity of the idea of, of communism and the the ideology of communism and the idea of the party? What makes it so attractive? Well, it's it's like I've partly suggested before. It's uh, the idea that uh, a group of individuals um, uh, has a privileged view of, of history, uh, that history follows a certain logic, and that this uh, logic um, allows for a certain predictive quality, um, at the same time, combined with the fact that elites like uh, Karl Marx uh, want to find a place for themselves in the world. Um, if you think about, you know, where do we find Marxists today? Uh, where do we find uh, people today who uh, uh, find the manifesto um, on its own terms attractive? We find them in universities because um, that's where you have intellectuals who, who are looking for their own place, you know, and they have ideas, they want to count. And so works like Marx's um, uh, justify their own uh, positions and their own work. So I guess that it's 170 years to the year that it was the Communist Manifesto was written, but I can't help but get a sense of the fact that perhaps communism is in decline. And I say that fully aware of the fact that one of the world's leading, uh, I hesitate to say this, but capitalist powers is also a communist power, China. So is communism in decline? And I think another thing that I, I would sort of like to ask you, because I think a lot of listeners would be interested to know this, is the term socialism is turning up a lot more in our discourse. People are labeling, labeling themselves as socialists. It's becoming quite trendy amongst 
millennials and Generation Xers, at least in the yes, Generation Z in, in the U.S. Um, what is the relationship of communism to socialism in our contemporary period? Yeah. Um, uh, so the the first, can you restate the first question? Yeah. It's basically is communism in decline. Oh, is communism in decline? Okay. Well, what I argue in the book is that the Communist Party, in any meaningful sense, is dead, uh, that it's gone. I, I don't think that we can say that just because a party calls itself communist that that necessarily makes it communist. Um, and so the issue for me is when we use words like this, communist or communist party, is this the best way of interpreting uh, what we see? Um, in some cases, uh, the, the parties that people still call communists have already abandoned that identity. Uh, officially, North Korea has not been a communist, uh, not had a communist party since the end of the 1990s. They simply don't refer to it anymore. But I think when um, you look at countries like uh, uh, um, China, for example, um, the, the attributes of what we call the Communist Party in the past simply don't exist. So one can get just as much or more mileage out of saying, well, what we find in China today is an example of you know, highly centralized um, uh, bureaucracy. Um, or, uh, you know, bureaucratized dictatorship. Um, for me, uh, when, we when we focus simply on the Communist Party, that's enough. Now, uh, communism in general, um, I guess, the, the, you know, the same argument applies when um, the, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party brings capitalists into its ranks uh, when it propagates policies that seem more like capitalist policies than anything else or um, capitalism in some form than state capitalism, um, then you can say that, uh, you know, communism has been so diluted that it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have any, any meaningful uh, sense to it. Now, socialism... Uh, uh, this is very interesting because, of course, uh, the debate between uh, so-called socialists and communists isn't new at all. It goes back to the 19th century. Originally, these, all, these people all called themselves socialists or social democrats as well as communists. Um, and um, they diverged over issues like uh, when will the revolution come? What is the best path to power? Is there a peaceful road to um, uh, uh, socialist ideals or Marxist ideals? And um, uh, the people who argued for uh, the peaceful path, a progressive path, um, are the ones who won out. And uh, in Europe, we call them social democrats. In the United States, uh, in the case of Bernie Sanders, we might call them uh, socialists. But... Um, it, the difference between them and communists is fundamental. It, it's not just quantitative. It's, it's fundamental because the idea of socialism um, today uh, means that, um, you know, the state can play a constructive and very important role 
in uh, the management of the economy and in serving the needs of, of society. Uh, and it need not be anything more than that, uh, except for the fact that it's democratic. And I think that is, uh, well, perhaps that's what people like Bernie Sanders have in mind when they use the word uh, socialist. Um, it's interesting that Americans now, some Americans would find the concept palatable because when I was growing up, you weren't supposed to be a socialist at all. Uh, and that was considered to be identical with communist. Um, but it's a pretty loose concept. It's a pretty loose concept. Well, I congratulate you on the book again, because I think it's such an achievement to produce a compendium like this. And I think I've mentioned this to you in our correspondence. It just works so well for, I just, I think about all the chapters I could just pull out because the chapters do function as their own universes to some extent, but then they also tie so well together. I feel like I could just pull one out and put it on one of my global history syllabi. Um, That's I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because that was my goal. And I, uh, I wanted to write the book in such a way that uh, uh, people who are experts in any given country uh, could read it and uh, think comparatively about the experiences of, of other countries or other peoples or uh, other uh, non-ruling parties. Um, and um, another thing that was very important for me is um, I, I, at least to the best of my ability, I don't use jargon in it at all. Um, you know, I, I do my best to follow uh, George Orwell's uh, example in writing in as clear fashion as I can and, and simply uh, saying what I, I think is going on and, and doing it in a reader-friendly way, whether one is a specialist or a generalist. No, I think that's one of the great downfalls of academic writing is that I think we do think that we need to write differently for academic audiences and for general audiences. And I think it's a pity because I think for one thing, they can be the same audience. Uh, yeah. Well, and what's also funny about that is it's hard to write um, in a clear fashion. It's not hard to write using lots of jargon because every time you don't know what you want to say, you simply throw in the jargon. Uh, but the goal is to be um, very clear about what you think, and then to be able to communicate that. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the things that I'm uh, uh, very happy to see is that a lot of students appreciate that, um, that uh, I am trying to communicate with them as intelligent people and, you know, uh, not simply seeking uh, disciples to any one methodological approach or another. I also think the book just reads very well as a story. I think you very much have that narrative writing skill, which I don't always find when I'm reading academic works. I sometimes feel that my relationship with reading has been destroyed by yeah. reading all these academic books. And they're great to some extent, but I, I just want sometimes to have that same experience of reading a novel when I'm reading an academic work. Well, it, it, is, a, it is a story, and, and why not? Uh, this is where academics become a little bit... Uh, you know, they become a little bit too clever and try to present uh, life, um, you know, in a, in a way that uh, is, is not the life that um, individuals live. But, I mean, this is a great story uh, from the middle of the 19th century to uh, the end of the 20th century. A uh, movement uh, came into being 
which uh, uh, ruled over hundreds of millions of people. The Communist Party was um, the leading challenger uh, to liberal democracy, to liberal democratic parties in modern times. It lasted for a long time, and uh, the people believed in it. Um, this is why one of the uh, things that really surprised me when I started the book is that I, I couldn't find a book uh, that was about the party in general or about the party as a global idea. Um, uh, all I could find were specific studies about individual parties. But this is an exciting story. And uh, it was a challenge to write, but it's wonderful to tell. And, uh, you know, and it, and it needs to be told, again, because the Communist Party was the leading challenger to the Liberal Democratic Party. And, of course, Liberal Democratic Parties uh, today are themselves in crisis, and uh, their future is uh, uh, open to question. No, you're absolutely right. It's a great story, and I, I think that the book does fill that gap. I think seeing something from, I, I, I think to say from a bird's eye view is unfair to the book because like we mentioned, you can just take so much time and painstaking effort to detail the context. But to look at it through a global lens does allow you to see nuances of the story and these little, both sub stories, but also these huge plot lines that we would otherwise not see. So again, congratulations. And I really hope that people pick it up and that people read it casually. I think, I know I mentioned that uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours was carrying it around for a week because he enjoyed it that much. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm very pleased to hear that. Thank you. Well, so to close the interview, we always sort of ask uh, our guests to give us a bit of a teaser. What are you currently working on? Any other projects in the pipeline? Yes, well, um, I'm, I'm working on a subject that concerns the future, and because the future hasn't happened yet, I'm pretty tentative. But I'm asking myself, um, what might post-Leninism be? And Leninism failed, uh, but there are aspects of um, the Leninist institutions that might be borrowed by revolutionaries today. Um, he, you know, we're, the world is currently being challenged by these waves of populism. Um, Leninism was a response to populism. Um, I think that there's going to be this temptation uh, in the coming years to call everything populism. But uh, Leninism and its, its various uh, and its variants were an attempt to come to terms with the fact that, uh, you know, the masses weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Uh, they weren't rebelling, and um, and so um, I'm I'm thinking about what might that look like if populism, as I expect, is uh, ceases to be appealing to intellectuals. If if it is even so right right now, I mean, uh, I think many of us, you know, from our our perches in the academies, look at populism and think, my God, what is this? Um, it has no substance. Well, in the late uh, 19th century in Russia, many intellectuals were saying the same thing. Populism has no substance, and these people don't cause, they don't bring about a revolution. So how can we do that? Oh, it sounds like it's going to be a really worthwhile project. So best of luck with that, and thank you for speaking to me today. My pleasure. <laughs>